from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God.
Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and verse 10. Listen now for a word from God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed God's mind about the calamity that God said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. A reading from the Gospel of Mark. After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, He saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Before I move on to today's familiar lesson of the calling of Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, I want to tell you the story of Dorothy Jones. Now, don't rack your brain too hard. Uh, It's not a name you'd remember from history books. Dorothy was born in the 1920s, the youngest of seven children on a farm near Hornbeak, Tennessee. And that's just a wide spot in the road in the western part of the state, almost on the banks of the Mississippi River. She was in middle school when her older brother left the family farm and joined the Navy. Unfortunately, he was killed at Pearl Harbor. He was on the USS Arizona. Her two older brothers uh, enlisted and also were soon fighting overseas. And she and her sisters were left to tend the farm, which was something that did not suit her nature. She said she dreamt of a life someplace, any place else, maybe Paris after the war. As her senior year in high school wound down in 1944, her class of a dozen students started to make plans about what to do next after graduation. Two or three had plans for college. The boys, of course, were talking about joining the service. Most of the other girls were planning on going back to their farms and keeping their fingers crossed that the drought of available young men would end soon so that they could get married and start their adult lives, although that really wasn't appealing to Dot. Well, one day, a notice appeared on a bulletin board in the school's hallway 
that said some recruiters were coming to the school to interview women who were interested in a job. And even though the notice did not say what type of job this was, she jumped at the chance, a chance for her own paycheck. Well, the recruiter showed up at her school and they first interviewed her teachers to find out what kind of person she was. And then they interviewed her and they asked her lots of questions about how well she could follow directions. And then there was a handwritten portion of the exam and thankfully for her, she recalled later, there was not a math portion. Now, prior to graduation, she received notification that she had, in fact, been accepted. She didn't know to what, but she was told that she would be reporting to Knoxville, and which, of course, was on the opposite end of the state from her, and they were going to have to wire her a bus ticket. Well, instead, her father said, why don't I drive you to Nashville? He wanted just a few more hours with his baby girl. But after that short drive to Nashville where she picked up a bus, he sent her off into a different world. And so the bus went from no Nashville to Knoxville, and when she got there, she was transferred from a commercial bus to a private charter, and she joined a group of young workers, men and women, who had arrived in Tennessee from all over the United States. And this other bus headed out of town and went west, up into the Cumberland Mountains. When Dot arrived at the place people kept referring to as the reservation, she was crestfallen. She said it looked like a cross between a medium security prison because it had uh, fences all around it with barbed wire, there were guards at every post, and a construction site. So the roads weren't even paved. There was heavy machinery everywhere, and what buildings she could see were temporary, hardly better than tents. They called them hutments. She and the other occupants of the bus were matriculated. She was issued a handbook that explained the rules that she was to follow, like how recruits weren't to talk to one another about their training, and that she was to wear a color-coded badge at all time. And it corresponded with signs around the camp, which if the color on her badge didn't match the color on the sign, she was not to go past. She was assigned a bunk in a dormitory. Uh, the place was called Happy Valley, with other young single white women. African-Americans were segregated. There was married housing, but it's just a quirk of how the South used to work. There wasn't segregated married housing. So African-American husbands and their wives were separated, had to sleep in separate quarters. She was shown the cafeteria where she'd take her meals. And the very first thing they started after she arrived and settled in was to start classes, something else she wasn't really happy about because she had just gotten out of school and thought at graduation that would be the end of it. And she almost demanded that they put her back on a bus and take her back down to Knoxville because at least Hornbeak had paved roads and sidewalks, but she persevered. For the next six weeks, she sat first in a classroom and then later in front of a mock-up of some sort of machine that had dials and meters and levers. And she and the other young women, and they were all young women, when they had to compare uh, chance to compare notes, they learned that they were all recent high school graduates and they were all from small towns in either the rural south or from Appalachia. They were taught how to operate these machines and to keep the needles on the dials within prescribed range, ranges. Their instructors reiterated what was in the handbook, that they were not to talk about what they were doing with one another and especially with anyone outside of the reservation. And this was, remember, during the Second World War. So there were constant reminders, posters and billboards that enemy ears were always listening. Dot finally graduated from the classroom and she was given her duty schedule. She was to work an eight hour shift, seven days on and then seven days off at a building she had not seen yet, but it was designated Y-12. 
this was an, a portion of the reservation that was nine miles away. And she and her fellow workers, when the time came, were bused there. And driving up, it was an unexpected sight in the Tennessee foothills, a series of massive brick and concrete buildings, a city block wide, ranging from four to five stories tall and stretching three quarters of a mile long. Dot and her hutment mates were led to a long room in the middle of the industrial complex. And there they found gray metal walls that were lined with real levers and dials and switches, just like the ones they'd been trained to use. And each girl would have a chair which they would man, one of 17 stations. There was a rumor, you know, handbook rules aside, young women are gonna talk. There was a rumor that this plant had something to do with the manufacture of synthetic rubber for the war effort. But there was something one of Dot's co-workers, Gladys Owens, reminisced years later that was a miss. She said the first day she walked into Y-12, she wore bobby pins in her hair. But when she approached her station, like magic, the bobby pins stood on end and then flew out of her hair and they stuck to the wall. Well, I'm hoping you've guessed where Dot ended up, for she and more than 12,000 other workers toiled in secrecy at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and they were really unsung heroes of the Second World War. Unbeknownst to them, they were part of a super-secret weapons program that had been launched when a Jewish-Hungarian-German physicist who'd immigrated to the United States to escape the Nazis named Leo Szilard realized the potential of atomic energy. Starting in the late 19th century, scientists began experimenting with the invisible force of nature, radiation, and they had worked out some theories about what was happening on a subatomic level. And Sislard postulated that if you were to bring a sufficient quantity of radioactive uh, material together, it could start a chain reaction. This was a term that he borrowed from chemistry. It was only a theory, but he was so certain of its potential that in 1939, he asked another Jewish-German physicist living in the United States to write President Franklin Roosevelt to alert him of his discovery. And the letter read, in part, Sir, some recent work by E. Fermi and L. Sislard leads me to expect that the element uranium may be turned into a new and important source of energy in the immediate future. Certain aspects of the situation which has arisen seem to call for watchfulness and, if necessary, quick action on the part of the administration. In the course of the last four months, it has been made probable that it may become possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium by which vast amounts of power and large quantities of new radium-like elements would be generated. This phenomenon would also lead to the construction of bombs. And it is conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of a new type may thus be constructed. A single bomb of this type, carried by boat and exploded in a port, might very well destroy the whole port together with some of the surrounding territory. However, such bombs might very well prove to be too heavy for transportation by air. The letter goes on, but I think you get the gist. It was signed, yours very truly, Albert Einstein. Well, that simple letter launched one of the most audacious undertakings in human history. The top secret program to unlock the secrets of the atom and to develop its energy into a super weapon. They called this program, as you know, the Manhattan Project. And I won't bore you with the physics of uranium enrichment, 
but the scientists discovered that they could build machines that took naturally occurring uranium and refine it, pulling out the rare fissile U-235 away from naturally abundant U-238 and collect enough material to make a bomb. Now, today, this process uses centrifuges and gaseous diffusion technologies developed at Oak Ridge. But the first method was done by using a machine called a Calutron. That was short for California University Cyclotron, a device invented by Ernest Lawrence at the University of California. Y-12 had 17 of them. Massive machines, 122 feet long, 77 feet wide, 15 feet tall. It was essentially a giant vacuum chamber into which vaporized uranium salts were ionized, that is, given an electrical current, and injected. And the negatively charged uranium particles circle around inside to land on a positively charged collector plate. And as the particles made a circuit of the calutron, they were subjected to enormous, powerful electromagnetic fields. And this would deflect the particles slightly. And the lighter, just barely lighter, 235 would deflect slightly more. And I say slightly because the two plates were only three-tenths of an inch apart. And this machine, as you can imagine, used incredible amounts of electricity. And one of the reasons the federal government stuck uh, Oak Ridge facility where it was, part of it was because it was kind of the middle of nowhere and so it was secret, but it was also next to the Appalachian Mountains and that meant abundant water power. At the same time that the government was building the secret facilities at Oak Ridge, a different collection of workers were building the Fontana Hydroelectric Dam 77 miles up the Tennessee River, just over the North Carolina line. If you've ever seen the movie The Fugitive with Harrison Ford, that's the dam that uh, Richard Kimball jumps off of. Well, the cover story to build what then, oh, it still is, the largest dam in the eastern part of the United States, and at the time was the fourth largest dam in the world, was that the power was going to be used to smelt aluminum to build more airplanes. Another interesting fact, the Calutrons used thousands upon thousands of miles of wiring wound to make the giant electromagnets, and ordinarily you'd have used copper. But of course, copper was being used to make brass casings for bullets and artillery shells. And so they substituted silver. They borrowed 14,700 tons of silver from the West Point Bullion Depository and I think as taxpayers, we'd like to know that after the war was over, they returned it. The Calutron also took constant vigilance so that those ionized beams didn't stray from their targets. And that's what Dot and the other Calutron girls were doing, even though they didn't know what they were doing. I think it is interesting that when Oak Ridge opened, they tried to run these machines to operate the Calutrons with men. But they couldn't do it. Their minds wandered. But the girls could. That's what they called them, Calutron girls. It was a slow process, but over the next several months, the Calutrons collected 141 pounds of enriched uranium, up to 89%. And here's a little known fact. In the summer of 1945, the United States had exactly three bombs in its possession. Two had plutonium cores. Uh, the scientists who assembled the gadgets, as they called them, weren't as certain of that design. That was what they called the fat man. So they tested one of them in July, Jornado del Muerto in Nevada. The first test of a uranium gun-type bomb, where criticality is achieved by shooting a plug of uranium into a jacket of the same material, was conducted on August 6, when Little Boy demolished the city of Hiroshima, Japan.
So sure were the physicists of the science and the physics involved. Now, people today argue about the moral use of nuclear weapons, that we're the only nation to have used one in anger. But I think it's helpful to put ourselves uh, back into the mindset of our forebears who were fighting the Second World War. The island hopping campaign of the Pacific revealed to our military leaders that the storming of the mainland of Japan would have extolled a fantastic price of American lives. And so using what we had was a no-brainer, as unfortunate as that is. And Truman said he never lost any sleep over ordering the dropping of the bomb. Well, after the surrender of Japan six days after the dropping of the, the other fat man bomb, Nagasaki, the last plutonium uh, device in our arsenal, the Oak Ridge workers, including Dot Jones, went into town to Knoxville to celebrate. They celebrated just like Americans did all over the country. And even though they had no clue that they played an integral part in, it, in its end. It wasn't for several months when the government started to declassify some of what had happened at Oak Ridge that the workers were let in on the secret and allowed to take part in the national pride in defeating the Axis powers. Well, so what does this have to do with the calling of the first disciples? Well, as I told you the story of Dorothy Jones, I mentioned some names you certainly already recognized, Roosevelt, Einstein, Truman. Some of you may have recognized Enrico Fermi's name or Ernest Lawrence's name, but none of us knew who Dorothy Jones was. And I'd like to argue that Simon, Andrew, James, and John were sort of like uh, the men who instigated the Manhattan Project, vitally important work to the direction of world history. And they've now become household names, but they didn't do it alone. So what if Einstein and the other scientists knew theoretically how to build a bomb? There's no way they could have done it on their own. They needed others helping, from dozens of other theoretical physicists crunching numbers beside them, to engineers building hundreds of buildings, electricians laying wires, miners digging pitch blend ore, right down to the carpenters building the wooden forms that would hold the concrete in Fontana Dam. And of course, the unwavering gaze of scores of Calutron girls who enriched the uranium. I think the story of God's kingdom is something like this. Ever since the fall of humankind, God has been on a mission, something like a heavenly Manhattan Project to redeem the world. The plan was made evident, the, the theory and the prophetic proclamations throughout the ages. We know the cost was high, far more than all of the treasure in a in a national treasury. It was, of course, the crucifixion of our Lord's own son, Jesus. And yet God went forward with God's plan. And some were called to something like spiritual notoriety, the disciples and the apostles, those we know by name. But so, so many more have been called to labor quietly and anonymously. Sure, some are called to make great sacrifices. But sometimes it doesn't seem like much is being asked at all. We tend to think that wars are won by those called to storm a beach under fire, but was that heroic deed any more instrumental than a group of young women who were asked, turn this knob, keep this needle on this number? I think it's our human condition that mostly keeps us 
from seeing ourselves in God's plan for us. As I mentioned, in two weeks, we'll elect new officers for this church. These are men and women whose individual gifts for ministry have been recognized by the wider congregation, and their names will be publicly acknowledged. But do you think they will be doing this ministry alone? Of course not. A committee of one, by definition, is not a committee. Ministry is a collective act. The mission of the church is a collective act. The body of Christ is made up of many, many parts. The church is all of us, each person doing a small part to further the kingdom of God. Anything and everything, when it's done to the glory of God, no matter how big or how small, is a part of a larger whole. It is part of God's overarching plan for the universe, and each and every one of us have been invited to take part in it. And I pray that when God calls, each of us will answer, here I am, Lord. Amen.